Welcome to Lost in the Movies. The classic Hollywood season this fall continues with this episode on The Shanghai Gesture, a Joseph von Sternberg film from 1941 that I reviewed um, several years ago on Patreon at the request of a patron. And I thought I had some listener feedback from them afterwards. I can't find it, but basically they said that they had recommended it because one of the elements of it reminded them of Twin Peaks, which was something I picked up on uh, before I saw that feedback, and I'll talk about briefly in the uh, in the uh, discussion. The previous episode was actually a big roundup of a bunch of shorter capsules on classic films, uh, or films from the classic era. Some of them are probably lesser known. Uh, they fell under the genres of melodrama, crime, fantasy, and war, and they included Ah Wilderness, A Letter to Three Wives, Invitation, Morning Glory, Parnell, Little Caesar, Dick Tracy, Nightmare Alley, Gilda, Woman in White, It Came from Outer Space, Pinocchio, The Devil and Daniel Webster, The Enchanted Cottage, The White Cliffs of Dover, The Fallen Sparrow, and The Angel Wore Red. All of them, like I said, you know, some as short as almost a minute in length, none of them longer than, I don't think, six or seven minutes, probably. Um, and so that was a different format. This episode, we're just going to do one, I think 13 or 14 minute uh, discussion of this one film. And then next month we'll be back to, uh, uh, less films, but, uh, you know, a handful of different films in a single episode as well. So we'll mention that at the end before we get there. Uh, here's what I've been up to elsewhere on my Twin Peaks cinema feed, uh, podcast feed. I put out episode number 17, Bigger Than Life, which concluded Ray's Haunted 50s, a series on Nicholas Ray films and their relationship to Twin Peaks, and cross-posted that on my site. And then on YouTube, I released the Twin Peaks Conversations number 14, uh, audio only, ominous whoosh author John Thorne. This is my second discussion with him on this particular podcast. I've had more in the past. He just wrote a new book on Twin Peaks, The Return, the season three that came out several years ago, and we discussed his theories there. Uh, for $5 a month patrons, I had the patron-exclusive part two of that conversation, which is longer, over an hour of extra content of, of our discussion. For the dollar a month patrons, I released part one of episode 95. The other part, which is going to be 90s and 70s film-focused, uh, is going to come out later in the month as I watch a few more films. Uh, this was called Concluding the 80s, Red Dawn, Do the Right Thing, and Hail Mary, uh, with also capsules on Stranger Things, Top Gun Maverick, The Goonies, Gremlins, Midnight Run, Scarface, and some feedia, feed, uh, sorry, feedback and media and work updates. I combined feedback and media into one word, uh, including Uncanto and more other films that I watched that I have brief discussions of on there. And as an exclusive advance, I shared my... Uh, Twin Peaks character series entries number 74, 73, and 71. Um, this uh, That was with uh, patrons. Um, they get to see months ahead of when I'm planning to release this series, uh, who is ranked at what level based on the screen time they're in it, and also read the full entries on them, uh, looking at Twin Peaks through these single characters, tracing the arc of their plot throughout the episodes, uh, you know, illustrations, screenshots of when they're in it and all that stuff. So they get to uh, get a glimpse of that. So that's it for what I've been up to elsewhere. Here is the Shanghai gesture. Good evening, Miss Smith. I hope you're not going to ask for credentials, too. You asked for $50,000. And why not? I might have asked for more. If your credit is good, any sum you wish is at your disposal. My credit is at least as good as yours. I'm sure it's better. 
But unless you can furnish me with exact references, I can't advance more than, say, um, 5,000. Shanghai Gesture takes place in a casino in Shanghai in probably about the 1930s. There's a little uh, description before the film which says that this takes place at a different time than now and Shanghai is currently experiencing the brunt of the war. This was 1941 and, you know, no one knows its fate or something like that. Um, actually, I take that back. It's probably set in the 20s because I think the play came out in 1923. There were like multiple attempts to film it over the years. And this was the first one that got off the ground. It's got a great cast, uh, although I think somewhat miscast in some cases, but certainly a lot of notable faces from the golden age of Hollywood. Um, starting at the top with stars like Gene Tierney, Victor Mature, and also Walter Houston, who really gives my favorite performance in the film. I just, I generally just love Walter Houston's work. Uh, he he always has a quality about him, no matter what type of character he's playing, that's just so watchable. And in some ways, he's totally the straight man in this movie. Like, everyone else is kind of off the wall, and uh, he's sort of the anchor, but he just has this uh, almost um, un, like unpresuming charisma in a way. Just very natural. I always enjoy watching him. Una Munson, or Ona Munson, sorry, <laughs> mixing her up with Una Merkel, I guess. Ona Munson plays Mother Ginsling, who runs the casino. And at this casino, she uh, is going to be closed down by Walter Houston's character, Sir Guy Charteris. And so she tries to find, kind of dig up some dirt on him. And, you know, she finds out way more than she could have ever expected. And that that line keeps developing throughout the film and it involves Poppy, the young woman played by Jean Tierney who comes into her casino, obviously sort of from the upper crust. doesn't quite belong there, but uh, you know, won't leave. She just keeps gambling and gambling and losing money and selling her jewelry and getting credit extended to her. And it all gets woven into this plot of uh, mother gin sling to overcome Sir Guy's attempt to shut her down. Victor Mature's character is Dr. Omar. Um, he's supposed to be um, Arab, I think. And uh, man, speaking of miscasting, this was just, this is a strange choice. Um, you know, even beyond just the sort of strange racial dynamics of it, to have Victor Mature, of all people, sort of walking around in a fez saying, praise Allah, is quite a sight to see. Uh, Ona Munson is also playing, she's playing a Chinese woman and, uh, you know, just not convincing at all in terms of makeup and a little bit cringeworthy at times. Every time she says something about, I'm Chinese, I'm Chinese, I'm I'm Manchu, I'm from Manchuria, and you're just like, eh, I don't think so. Um, but that said, she gives a great performance, um, you know, probably in some ways the strongest in the film, although, as I said, I have a soft spot for Walter Houston. Phyllis Brooks is great as a chorus girl. And actually, I'm going to read a selection from uh, Sheila O'Malley's review, which I discovered after seeing the film. I just thought she summed up perfectly the quality that Phyllis Brooks has. So I'm going to defer to that. Dixie is played by the kooky, wisecracking Phyllis Brooks, and she seems to have strolled out of another movie, a sister in spirit to the stranded showgirl Jean Arthur plays in Only Angels Have Wings. Phyllis Brooks had a short career, but she makes a wonderful impression here. She goofs off to keep herself amused, lolls about in armchairs waiting to be noticed, and treats everyone with an egalitarian, humorous spirit, although it's obvious she is mainly thinking, what is with all these weird people? 
If we had any doubt about how lost Gene Tierney's poppy really is, all we have to do is look at Dixie. Dixie comes from a recognizable world, a world she still remembers. At an uptight dinner at Mother Ginsling's, Dixie sits at her place at the table, playing with her spoon, putting it over one eye, then the other, making silly faces, hoping someone will laugh. No one does. So that's her quote, not me. Not me. I thought it was a great description of sort of, yeah, the character who uh, in some ways seems like, you know, the, the down-to-earth conduit for the American audiences as everyone else is in clear, you know, states of uh, opiate overindulgence or something. You know, you know the, the film can never quite say what's going on and uh, that's in some ways to its benefit and in some ways just adds to the confusion. But I think my favorite tiny role from, uh, you know, a great Hollywood character actor is actually Maria Uspenskaya. And she appears as a sort of, uh, I guess, suppose a handmaiden to uh, Mother Ginsling. She accompanies her. I don't think she has any lines in the film. She seems kind of out of place, this small Russian woman just kind of tagging along. And then there's one shot at the end where Mother Ginsling finds out that Poppy might be her daughter and she turns and she looks and Maria Spenska just like nods, like the sage who somehow knows, yes, she is your daughter. And it made me actually laugh out loud because it's just, it's totally without explanation. And yet it seems totally right. You know, if anybody would know, it would be sort of this wizened old, old woman. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of moments like that in the film. I think it's probably best taken with a grain of salt um, even though I think it takes itself a little more seriously than something like Scarlet Empress. So this is a pretty acclaimed film, uh, to my surprise, because I hadn't heard that much about it beforehand. I'd seen a lot of uh, Sternberg's films with Marlena Dietrich and uh, enjoyed those quite a bit. This one, I thought, honestly, was kind of more of a mess. It seems to call out for like sort of a snappy pace and uh, kind of a lot of you know, quick banter back and forth between all of these bizarre characters, something, you know, so a little bit of that Casablanca vibe. And Sternberg's just not that director. He's much more interested in kind of, you know, almost meditating on a face or a, or a strange gesture and sort of slowing things down. And uh, so I noticed as I was watching that they're just the, there just seemed to be these extra beats after everything, after every line, every moment that, uh, just felt out of place and apparently this is something that has kind of bothered uh, or not necessarily bothered but something that a lot of people have noticed over time and I guess uh, Peter Bogdanovich even brought it up to Sternberg directly when he was interviewing him and he just totally dismissed it said no that's the pace it needs to be so you know far be it for me to disagree with the master but uh, t- to me the uh, the tempo really didn't quite suit the material It's a bit all over the place, Uh, partly because in adapting the play that it's based on, they had to make a lot of changes. For one thing, the casino in the film, it's actually supposed to be a brothel, which makes so much more sense on so many levels. Um, But it's almost this weird unspoken thing. Walter Houston is horrified that his daughter is here at this casino and the women are all flaunted about. And it makes so much more sense for this for this to be a brothel. So it's kind of funny that still trying to play it as it's written, even in this incongruous setting. There's also a funny similarity between this and Twin Peaks in that the whole One-Eyed Jack scenario uh, feels like maybe it was kind of pulled from Shanghai gesture. You have a madam of a brothel who wants to get revenge on a man she was romantically linked to who now 
sort of has potential power over her in this business in this case because he wants to shut her down or actually move her to another uh, location and in Twin Peaks case because Ben Horn actually owns the casino and in both films you have the madam taking advantage of the daughter sort of being in her uh, possession so to speak and uh, drugging her up and using her to humiliate the father so I thought that was interesting another element that they changed and this is bizarre is they changed omar uh from a character who is supposed to be japanese apparently according to a new york times article from the time the censors felt that it would just be unacceptable miscegenation to have him be japanese and uh getting together with gene tierney's character which is bizarre first of all aside from just you know being a kind of horrifying symbol of the time it's also bizarre because they do still kind of make victor mature as as if he's not white and on top of that gene tierney's character as we find out spoiler alert is uh also of mixed race herself the whole film is about you know a, a chinese woman and uh, an american man having so i i don't know what was going on there just one of hollywood's stupid censorious uh clusterfucks basically and you get a definite sense that uh, part of poppy's torment is that this character is torn between the the decadence of the east and you know her her western father who wants to to sort of keep her uh safe and everything like that there's there's definitely a, a more than a tinge of that to this which it also makes it a little bit distasteful that the film just ends with her getting shot by ginsling um you know it's almost like she can't exist she's too uh depraved we can't allow her to exist in this world or something like that what's most to recommend about the movie is the interactions between the actors and certainly the environment that's created this sort of casino pit down you know these these spiral staircases and everything like that to a certain extent the street scenes although most of it's set indoors not that the outdoors is really outdoors you know it has a definitely has a very studio soundstage sort of quality to it um, which is part of the charm of course now one thing that's interesting about the uh the biggest one of the biggest set pieces anyways in the film is uh the ambiguity of it. So there's a bunch of women and they're being lifted in cages above a crowd that's bidding on them. And Mother Ginsling just says that uh, she sort of dismisses it, says, oh, it's all an act. We try to show them the image of China that, that uh, the tourists want to see of this dangerous, exotic place. And some of the men are a little skeptical. I took her at her word, but interesting in the in the uh, Sheila O'Malley review, uh, she seems to take it as, no, this is clearly you know that that these women have been kidnapped and are being sold into slavery i think the film does want to cultivate that ambiguity and that's part of this overall sort of orientalist project that it has the shanghai gesture was more or less joseph von sternberg's last hollywood movie certainly the one the last one that he directed alone and it ended a period where he was directing fairly regularly and the next three films that he was at all connected to were released over a period of about 15 years. So he sort of moved on to other um, work, including actually teaching film to uh, at USC, including to uh, Jim Morrison and Ray Manzarek, which I thought was just fascinating. Uh, you know, I know Oliver Stone had fun casting himself as the film professor in that movie, but 
man, they, they, I think he should have shot a scene with somebody playing Joseph von Sternberg. And I guess Ray Manzarek uh, cited him as the uh, one of the formative influences on The Doors, which I had no idea about. So that's that's pretty cool to find out. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That's the best way to let people see this work. And uh, if you have any thoughts on any of these films, let me know. You can uh, leave a comment on my site or get at me on Twitter at Lost in the Movies or anywhere else, and uh, I'll share those thoughts on an upcoming episode. Each of these uh, entries this season kind of pivots into the next episode, if you've noticed. There's usually a subtle thematic connection. So in this case, we have a film uh, set in China during the kind of interwar period, and the next episode is going to begin with another film like that, The Bitter Tea of General Yen. And then I'm also going to discuss... Uh, some other films about royalty, Knights of the Round Table, Land of the Pharaohs, and Rasputin and the Empress, all of them films about the downfall of some royal figure. So I'm calling this episode The Vulnerable Throne. It's another set of film capsules, but there are fewer of them because uh, these tend to be longer, especially Bitter Tea of General Yen is uh, longer than most of my capsules usually are. I think it's like seven or eight minutes long. And uh, all of them are uh, you know similarly themed as I said so here's a little taste of each of those to take you out and we'll see you in November with that you mean to say that you left the prospect of a beautiful woman's loving arms for some nameless brats certainly hope she never finds that out and if at times we differed and fell out still I will say that no two men living were greater friends then I met a woman from that hour I loved her Santa who traded a pharaoh's ransom for the love of a slave girl, Nelifer, the faithless hostage whose beauty masked her sinful treachery. Inside of a year, in less than a year, I will be Russia. You hear that?